Amen. Well, this is normally the time when I would tell you to turn to a specific passage in the Bible. I'm not going to do that this morning because this is a time of transition for us uh, in, in so many ways. I mentioned several in our, in our prayer. We've started our new fall programming, which includes Bible study on Sundays. We're going to kick off small groups in a couple of weeks. We're welcoming in lots of new faces. And along with that, it made sense to begin a new sermon series. So the, the series that we've done over the summer has been in Colossians, a letter of Paul in the New Testament. And, and now we want to switch back to the Old Testament and uncover some goodies there. Now, the conventional wisdom is that other than maybe Leviticus or Jude or maybe Third John, there is no more obscure or less known section of the Bible than the Minor Prophets. And just humor me here. I want to test that conventional wisdom really quickly. So show of hands, be honest. How many of you guys could list off all 12 of the Minor Prophets? Any hands? All 12 of them on the spot. Steve, I'm tempted to ask you to come up here and do it, but I know you're good for it. So I'm going to go ahead and say Steve is the man. He can list them all. Uh, how many of you even knew there were 12 of the Minor Prophets? All right, good. a few more hands there. That's good. How many of you think you could name six of them? Half. Okay. A smattering of other hands. Uh, what about, how many of you have ever heard a sermon series preached in the Minor Prophets or a Minor Prophet? Okay. Less than half. I'm seeing maybe a, maybe a third at most, and that's kind of generous. So maybe you're thinking, why in the world are we? studying the minor prophets. There's part of the reason, of course, is that they're in the Bible, and we take the Bible to be God's Word, and we take it to be true that because it's still here, it's been preserved intact in this form because God meant all of it to get to us, and he meant all of it to work towards conforming us into Jesus' image. So there's, there's a reason to study it just for the sheer fact that it's in the Bible and that the Bible is a covenant document that explains to us who God is, what he wants from us, and how we're supposed to, to live and relate to him. But even more than that, part of our philosophy here, when, when the elders sit down to try to decide what our preaching series are going to be and plot those out, one of our philosophies is to try to cover as much ground as we can in as, as quick uh, uh, windows of time as we can because we understand and this is hard, but it's also good, that this is probably going to be a transient congregation from here on out. We, we're so close to the university that it, we assume our, our makeup will always be affected by it, which means we get a lot of people for three years or four years at best, and then we, we say goodbye to them and send them somewhere else. So we think that part of our responsibility is to, in, is to introduce as much of God's Word and as many different kinds of literature as there are in God's Word during that window of time that we've got any given person. The minor prophets offer a particularly great opportunity for that because most of them are short. Not all of them, but most of them are short. And so our plan is to take the fall to do all of the minor prophets. We're going to take the next weeks to do basically one prophet per week leading up into Christmas. And then the, and during the Advent season, the, the three Sundays leading up to Christmas, we'll go back, dip back into the minor prophets and pull out those texts that speak specifically about Jesus coming and try to unpack how those help us prepare to celebrate Christmas more meaningfully. I think what you're going to find, even if, we, if you're like me and, and you don't naturally know, more, uh, know much about this passage compared to like the Gospel of John, I think what you're going to find is that it's, it's a collection of books that are rich in insight, that are full of beautiful, beautiful language and really interesting and sometimes surprising characters. 
I think you'll find that by understanding this collection of books better, you'll understand all of the Bible better because they fit into a storyline that's one piece and they explain a major section of it that helps illuminate the others. So that's our goal. That's why we're about to study the Minor Prophets. And, and I think today, the reason I'm not actually going to unpack one specific passage is that these books on the whole are so little known that I feel like for it to work well, for the series itself to work well, we need to prepare for what's coming. Because of how, uh, because of how fast we're going to go through these, one a week basically, there's going to be a lot of detail that's not going to get unpacked in the sermon itself. So, so we want to take today to set the stage. We want to answer three simple questions. What are the minor prophets? We need to come to some understanding of what kind of books these are and what's in them. That'll help us understand how to, how to take them, how to interpret them later. We want to understand why or what is the value of studying these books today or what can we learn today from the minor prophets. And then how can we best prepare for the study? Because this is a different kind of preaching series than we've done so far. And I think there's been some specific strategies that we can use. And I'm going to give you guys today that if, if you use my think, it'll maximize what you can get out of the study. So that's our plan for today. I'm going to dive right in since we've got no specific passage to read. What are the minor prophets? You've got a worship guide. I hope all of you found one of those on your way in. There's an outline page in that worship guide that includes a definition of what these minor prophets are. Let me just read it for us. What are the minor prophets? The minor prophets are a collection of books by men and women, or men, excuse me, who spoke messages from God to Israel surrounding the exile. Messages condemning sin, warning of judgment, and promising redemption. The minor prophets are a collection of books by men who spoke messages from God to Israel surrounding the exile. Messages condemning sin, warning of judgment, and promising redemption. Now that's a mouthful carries way too much weight. And honestly, if you use a sentence like that in a paper, you're probably going to get hammered for it. But we're not writing a paper here, and I have the, I have the, uh, I have the ability to actually unpack this for us. So that's what I want to do. The sentence captures who they are, and there's really four main components in this sentence. I want to treat each of them in turn to set the stage for what kind of literature we're about to dive into. What are the minor prophets? First of all, they are a collection. They are a collection. Now, this is why that, that matters. Normally... We would think of, say, Hosea, which is the first one in the collection, as a book on its own made up of 14 chapters, and it sort of stands alone. Those 14 chapters in Hosea belong to Hosea and Hosea alone. It's harder for us to understand the way that these books actually came to us, which is as a book themselves, with each of the 12 as a separate chapter. Really, the way that the the Hebrew Bible in which these originally fit treated them was as a book called the Twelve. And then you had... Chapters that included Hosea and Joel and Amos and on and on and on. Now, I think that what, maybe one of the best ways to understand this is, is as a, almost a collection of essays. You know, some books are written by one person and they include chapters and they work a constant theme from beginning to end. Others, maybe a, maybe a collection that's written to honor somebody. They're, they're written by many different authors, but they all fit together as part of one book because they're united by certain themes. That's kind of what the the minor prophets represent, a collection of chapters written by different people, but all pointing us in some common directions. So think of them that way. Even the arrangement of the books themselves, if you look really closely, has hints of the fact that they were originally meant to go together. 
So, for instance, Joel, the prophet Joel, closes in Joel 3.16 with an image of the Lord roaring like a lion in response to sin. Then Amos, the next book in line, the first chapter, opens with this exact same image of God as a roaring lion out to punish and rid the world of sin. Another example. Amos, same book, closes by addressing Edom, which was a nation that was a neighbor to Israel. Amos closes by addressing Edom. Then Obadiah, the next book in line, opens, and and really the whole thing is about Edom. So there's that connection. Jonah, the next book in line, is about Nineveh. That's probably the one we're we're most familiar with. Jonah, who's the prophet sent to Nineveh. He he flees in the other direction on a boat. He gets thrown. He gets swallowed by a thrown out, swallowed by a whale, ends up back in Nineveh, preaches to them, isn't happy that they repent. You know the story. We're going to get there later. It's all about Nineveh. The next book in line, which is Micah, predicts the coming judgment of Assyria, which is Nineveh's home. It's like, so if Jerusalem is a city that belongs to Israel, Nineveh was a city that belonged to Assyria. So Jonah preaches, they respond for a while. Next book, right back in Assyria, same part of the world. And then the next book after that, back to Nineveh again and promising, predicting judgment for Nineveh. So when we move through them, the bottom line here is that they're meant to go together and that, and that seeing them as part of a whole will in, at certain places really influence how we understand them. So we're going to try to be sensitive to where each, each one fits into the flow. So they're a collection. What else? The minor prophets are also speaking messages from God. They speak messages from God. Now, the reason that's important is that normally I think what we th- what our, where our minds go when we think of prophecy is that we think about like Tim LaHaye and Left Behind and like the end times. We think about f- things that are future-oriented, someone who can tell the future. Uh, that is not really... I mean, sometimes prophecy can include that, some sort of f- foretelling, if you will. And, and some of the books we're going to look at actually go that way too. But that's not, in essence, what philosophy is. Or, excuse me, what, what, uh, what prophecy is. What prophecy is is simply a message from God. It may have to do with the future, but more often than not, especially in the minor prophets, it's addressed to these people in this particular time and place for that moment to condemn their sin and to call them back to repentance to avoid a possible future judgment. It's really a message from God. That's what we're looking at. Third, the minor prophets are addressed to Israel for the most part. Some, some also branch off and address their neighbors. But to Israel and Israel's neighbors surrounding the exile. And this is the lone little bit of history you're going to get this morning. We have to understand where these books fit in the continuum of Israel's history. The story that began with God's calling of Abraham back in Genesis. Something we looked at earlier in the spring. And, and has proceeded ever since then. Promises that through Abraham, God would actually save the world. That through him, he would build a nation of many descendants that would be like, like the sand on the ocean shore. And that through him, he would give them land and a kingdom. A place that, that, that he would be able to relate to his people in the way that was meant back in Eden. That was the promises to Abraham. And those things have been teased out throughout the Bible storyline up to this point. The, the rest of Genesis tells of Abraham's sons and how they get in, wind up down in Egypt. Exodus opens with them stuck there in slavery for hundreds of years until God liberates them and takes them into a promised land that he gives to them by removing those who had lived there and offering it up for his people. Then we, we move forward to a time with no king, 
the, the era of the judges where everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes and they're turning on each other, just seeking power over each other, not looking to God. And God's provisional solution is to give them a king. If they won't be content to, to sit under God's authority alone, he installs a king over them. And, of course, we know that David becomes this prototype. David becomes the king that is, that is merely a shadow of a coming king who will not rule on behalf of God, but as God himself, as one in and among his people. Of course, the promises made to David were promises that would have to wait quite some time to be fulfilled. Because what the, what the history books in the Old Testament explain soon after the, the record of David and his son Solomon is a rapid decline where they turn from, by and large, turn from worshiping the one true God to the gods of their neighbors. They no longer content to rest in the security that comes from obedience to God and faithfulness to his covenant. They turn to the gods of other neighbors, thinking maybe they'll be more powerful, will be able to accomplish more on behalf of them. They turn to alliances with other powerful nations, thinking that's where they could get security. Wherever they turn, they, they turn away from God. And that was true for most of these kings throughout the period of several hundred years after David got so bad, in fact, that they began to turn on each other. So that Israel, in fact, split into two nations. You had ten tribes of the twelve that were up in the north, and they kept the name Israel. And then you had two tribes that stayed down near the south around Jerusalem. They were called Judah. Imagine the American Civil War, leading up to the American Civil War, the south secedes. There's two separate nations of, of what had been one people. This is basically what happened in Israel, except there was no war that followed, at least not one that, could, that would reunite them. And that is the situation into which these prophets speak. Because by this point, the decline had reached, uh, it reached a, a complete low point, and they were facing exile. Ultimately, that's exactly what happens. They refuse to respond to the words of the prophets, and God sends other powerful nations to come in and wipe them out and then take them back to their homes to serve as slaves. Israel, the northern nation, falls in the year 722 before Christ. And then barely 100 years later, the same thing happens to Judah. Now, I say all of that to give you just a really quick overview of the kind of scenario or context into which the minor prophets speak. Because what the minor prophets give us, some speaking before the exile, some speaking after the exile, or after the return back to the land after the exile, what they give you is commentary on these events that play out in books like Chronicles and Kings. The story gets told there. The minor prophets give you the commentary. Think about a DVD, right? You've got the main story. You've got the movie itself. And then you've got director's commentary that you can turn on and hear the director speaking about the events as they play out. I think the Minor Prophets provide basically special features for us on the stories that you read in, in Kings and Chronicles. They help us to understand what God is thinking about what is going on in Israel's history. So all that to say, the third important thing about the Minor Prophets is that they speak to this nation at a particular point in time, into a particular circumstance, and they let this nation know what God thinks. Finally, fourth thing, what do they actually say? And this is what we're going to spend the rest of the series unpacking. But in sum, these are messages about sin, condemning sin, messages warning about judgment, and messages promising redemption and restoration. Each of the books within the main book has its own themes. But what stretches all across them is a focus on these three themes. Some books pick one or the other and really develop it. 
but they're all pervasive throughout the whole. So, that's what the minor prophets are. I think maybe the question that's burning more in our minds, and should be at least, is what can we learn from them? What can we learn from the minor prophets? And the reason that's such an important question is, is rooted in what I've already just told you, that they were really directed to this very specific time and place. And we don't live then. We aren't, we aren't part of that divided kingdom. We aren't worshiping those same exact idols that they were. We don't, therefore, we don't stand in the same position that God was addressing then. So are these merely nice historical records like that we read for interest in the same way that we might read Herodotus histories or, or something like that, of something that was long ago and very much a part of that time and place but not really binding on us? I mean, it's tempting to see them that way, even for those of us who believe that these are God's word. And that we should, we should turn to them and be interested in them. We, what we've got to do, what we've what we got to do is bridge a gap between the time in which they were written, their original context and its meaning, and our own. That's always the task of anybody who wants to interpret the Bible. But it's a lot easier to do that when you're reading the Gospel of John. And you're reading stories about Jesus and who he is and who he said he, he had come to be and what he was going to do for us. It's, it's much easier to do that than it is to bridge the gap between what God says through Obadiah about slaughtering all the men of Edom. What do we do with that? That's a question that we're going to be asking a lot. I can't do much more than whet your appetite this morning, but I do want to do at least that. I think there are three categories of things we're going to come across in these books that are timeless. Ultimately, God reveals himself in time, in story, by acting and speaking in specific ways. And those don't change. They apply themselves differently to different situations, but they stay the same in God. And I think there are three major things that we can learn from the minor prophets that help us know how God relates to us now, what's expected of us and what we can expect from him. I think we learn much about the nature of sin, about the character of God, and about the significance of Jesus. About the nature of sin, the character of God, and the significance of Jesus. Now, we're going to say much more about each of these as we get into the details of each book. And I I don't want to get too specific because I don't know how much use that would be if we just go chasing down references. But I want to give you at least some examples of each of these, beginning with the nature of sin. I think we learn more about the nature of sin, not so much that sin gets described differently in this part of Scripture than it does in others. I think the Bible has a consistent message on what sin is. But it gets illustrated differently here. We get some case studies, if you will, of what sin looks like in practice and about how God feels about it. So, of course, the summary judgment of what sin represents is that it's covenant-breaking. Sin is fundamentally disobeying covenant regulations put in place by God when he strikes a covenant with, his, with, with people. And we know from the Old Testament, from the books of the law, that all of that, that Moses covenant at least, could be summarized in two things. Responsibilities are to love God first above anything else and to love him completely with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love neighbor as self. Love God first, love neighbor as self. There's lots of regulations, lots of nitty-gritty in there, but That summarizes them all, we're told. And we see people breaking both of those fundamental covenant obligations over and over again in the Minor Prophets in ways that give us insight, I think, into how we could break them. So, for instance, breaking the command to love neighbor as self. 
these books, which are made up of poetic oracles, statements written in, like poetry from God to address to people. They, they read almost like they're to be read off in a courtroom because a lot, there are oftentimes that, that someone, some offender, some lawbreaker will be called to account by God as if he's standing before the judge's desk. Is that what you guys, is that what you legal guys call it, the desk? throne, wherever the judge sits. He's, he's come and he's standing before it and God is reading off, rattling off all the things that this person has done to break the law that binds him. One of the greatest examples I think is Amos. Right out of the gate in the first chapter Amos is calling all the nations of Israel to account for their sins. He calls out Syria who had showed cruelty in war, who had treated people as if they were just objects. He calls out Gaza guilty of capturing cities, probably cities that were unprotected, and then selling their people into slavery. Tyre had been guilty of the same thing. He calls out Edom, who's guilty of perpetual anger and empty of any kind of compassion. He calls out Ammon, who had brutally killed innocents in war, including pregnant women. And Moab, he calls out, for being so consumed by revenge that they wouldn't even let it go when the person had died, but they even had to desecrate their graves. One by one, the nations come to account before this judge and their sins, their specific guilt is rattled off. And all of it helps us understand insight into what it is to fail to love neighbor as self. To the impulses that are in us just as much as they were in the leaders of Syria or Ammon that lead us to insecurity and therefore to take it out on other people. To be defensive and combative, to seek for authority or supremacy in relationships. It's the same impulse. Of course, the breaking of this command to love others as as self is, is really just rooted in a breach of that first commandment. Ultimately, what we understand about idolatry is that it is a refusal to be content, trusting that God can do what he says he will, and therefore obeying him when he tells us to do something. Idolatry is trading in some other source of security, trading in God for some other source of security, some other source of, of meaning or guiding in life. It's to say, God can't deliver if I do what he says, so I'm going to try to worship this other thing that I think might deliver in a way God couldn't. Now, we don't worship the same kind of idols that they do. We don't have the same mechanisms in place, but we do the same exact things. Because any time we sin in any particular way, what we first done is doubted that God was worth trusting and therefore worth obeying. The prophets get really specific about this, about calling out the idolatry that is at the root of all of Israel's problems. Habakkuk has some very memorable images. Uh, calling, out, calling out idols is basically empty human creations. Here's what he says. This is in Habakkuk chapter 2. He says, What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts its own creation when he makes speechless idols. I think this is it's language that echoes for sure passages in places like Isaiah. The point is that you're, you're worshiping something you have created. How could it have power? And we tend to look at these old, this old-style idolatry and mock it for the same reasons and not realize that when we trade in submission to God for something else, 
What we're doing is trading him for something that's also our creation. It may not be made out of wood. We may not have carved little eyes that can't see, but it's just as empty and just as void of any kind of power to deliver on what we hope it will deliver. Idolatry hasn't changed. So by getting insight into what idolatry looks like, we know better how to relate to God and to repent of that sin in our lives. I think my favorite image uh, of idolatry and how foolish and how deeply painful a thing that it is, though, comes in Hosea, which is what we're going to look at next week. In Hosea, God calls the prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute as a visual image of what Israel had been to him. God understood his covenant with Israel as a marriage-type covenant where he had bound himself to this bride, if you will, and that bride had been unfaithful. And as a visual aid, he calls Hosea to experience the same thing. He, he defines idolatry as spiritual adultery. Now, idolatry looks different for us, as I've said, but the offense that it represents to God is no less different. And Hosea and books like it help us to connect with how serious sin is because they give us vivid images that we understand, the image of adultery. And they apply it to our relationship to God to help us see what it is that we are doing to him when we break that first commandment. So we learn here about the nature of sin. The Minor Prophets also teach us much about the character of God. I love what James Boyce said here. James Boyce was a pastor in Philadelphia for many, many years. He said that, referring to the Minor Prophets, They dramatize the character of God as few other books do. The minor prophets dramatize the character of God as few other books do. I think what he means by that is that they put God into the story as a character. They show him interacting in real time with things that happen, with events and people and responding to them in in concrete ways. They show, for example, God's severe hatred for sin on one hand and his deep and unrelenting love on the other hand. They show us a God, they dramatize for us a God who won't be pigeonholed into defined categories that we might put him in. They show us much about his hatred towards sin and his desire to judge it. In Hosea, for instance, God comes to us, he's dramatized here for us, not just as a wounded lover who's been abandoned by his bride, but as a rabidly jealous husband who won't stand by and let it happen. The rest of the books give us vivid imagery of, of God coming and promising to come in judgment for this sin because he's bound by character to do so. I love the image I've already mentioned before of Amos and Joel, of God as a roaring lion confronted with this terrible treason against his authority, against his love and care for his people, coming at this thing that claims he's something that he isn't. He roars like a lion. I can't read that without thinking about that scene in Lion, Lewis in the Wardrobe from Lewis. Think about Aslan at the end of that story. How his roar alone is enough to blow back any opposition and rid the kingdom of the evil that had held it in its grip. That's where that God comes at sin like that. He comes at our sin like that as a roaring lion that won't be satisfied until it's gone. These books also give us this powerful image of the day of the Lord. 
It's something that we probably have heard before, and it comes up elsewhere, but, but it's really developed here more than and, and first in a collection of these prophets. This day that is still out there in the future when God, though God's mercy may delay it for now to allow time for repentance, it's a day that is coming that is more horrible than even the day that, that Israel and Judah were conquered and shipped off into exile, a day that will leave no evil still standing. These books point us to that time when the God who roars against sin will roar once and for all, and it will be done. They warn us of that coming. And for that reason, because this is the kind of God that these books dramatize, these books can often be really hard to swallow for us. Because in this day and age, in our time, for us, for those who read the things we do and watch the things we do and breathe the air that we do, we don't like to think about God like this, do we? About a God who appears in anything other than love. Now, just this is something we're going to come back to again and again, but I, I want to at least put on your radar, I think, a common argument that's going to come, come up as we come to these passages over and over again. I think it's that we just cannot afford to allow ourselves to assume that things are the way we want them to be because we want them to be that way. We can't assume, we can't allow ourselves to assume that things are the way that we want them to be. Or we could say that God is who we want him to be just because we want him to be that way. It's almost like saying that if we tear up the credit card bill when it arrives in the mail and throw it away and pretend like we didn't receive it, then the debt goes away with it. That's how we want it to be, but it just doesn't work that way. What is is what matters, not what we want. What we do in our wants, what we do to God, is flatten him out as a character in a movie that no one would want to see. A guy who just responds in exactly the same way to all things, who's not diverse in his... In his, uh, in his character and attributes. We try to make God into some sort of all-loving Stephen Seagal, who's only got one move, basically. But God is not, God is not like that. God, uh, God responds differently based on his character in different situations. He's complex. He's layered. He's beautiful in that way. And we submit ourselves to him not because he is what we want him to be, because he is who he is. Because when he, re- when he spoke to Moses and answered his question, who are you? His answer was, I am. So our job is not to form God into our image, but to respond to the God that actually exists. And the minor prophets help us do that, even if their images of judgment are going to be very hard to swallow for us sometimes. Now, thankfully, he is a complex character. He is a, a God who speaks not just in judgment, but also in love. And in these books, we get some of the most vivid and beautiful pictures of God's love and his plan to redeem and to restore his kingdom. And we're going we're gonna to have a blast unpacking these. But because Hosea comes up next week, I really want to point you again for an example to Hosea. Remember the, the central image of that book. The central image there is of God related to Israel like a husband related to a wife who has prostituted herself for all comers. Part of that story, part of the story told in Hosea is of Hosea marrying this woman who then, after being married by Hosea, sells herself back into prostitution and and leaves. That's an image of what Israel had essentially done to God. God's response through Hosea and the imagery that he evokes there is to tell Hosea to go and buy her back. 
go where she has willingly sold herself. Go to her where she is because she abandoned you, because she chose others over you, and pay whatever is owed to redeem her. That is the image of God's love presented in Hosea. God is a God who has been abandoned by an impure, unfaithful bride. And his response is not to just let it go, but to he, the offended party, pay the penalty that's necessary to redeem the one who willingly dug that pit. He tells the prophet to go to that wife where she sold herself, where she sold her body and her affections into the possession of other men and to buy her back, to go into her captivity, to climb down into the pit that she dug for herself and to pull her up out of it. That's an image that is every bit as vivid as the prodigal son whose son took all that he had and ran off and blew it all and then came back home again to let daddy keep footing the bill. And what does daddy do? He throws open his arms and he welcomes him. These are the images we're going to come across in Minor Prophets, and they're beautiful. God is a complex character who dramatizes himself for us in these books. And to borrow again from Lewis, the God that we see there is a God who's not safe but good. He's a God who's not safe but good. Finally, these prophets help us to see the significance of Jesus. Now, this is something I don't want to get too far into today because, again, this is going to come up a lot as we get into each individual book and especially as we build towards the Advent season where we start to pull back from the books to prepare for Christmas. But these prophets come to us as, in many cases, some of the last writings to appear before Jesus comes. Some of the last things written in the Old Testament. Now, in our Bible, they're, they're placed at the very end, but not all of them were written at exactly the same time. There was a big window of time in which they were, they were written, and, and other books in the Bible were written also during that period. But that said, many of them are the last writings that we have before Jesus comes. They reflect Israel's position before God on the eve of the coming of the Messiah. And for that reason, many times they pinpoint things that are waiting to be delivered, things that that still aren't what they ought to be, things that Jesus is meant to bring. Many of these books, several of them, the last last group of them, were written after Israel had been sold or or they'd been conquered, they'd been taken away into exile, and then they'd come back provisionally to the land. And they were given the right by those who now controlled them to build the temple again, to build the wall around Jerusalem, to build their homes. And in that context, you'd think they would be overjoyed that maybe some of the promises in the other prophets of restoration were now being fulfilled. Is this what the restored kingdom is going to look at look like? But looking around, what they see is a temple that is much smaller and less glorious than Solomon's was, a wall that isn't the kind of defense that can really make this city secure. Ultimately, they're still living under the power of the the one who had colonized them and let them come back. Ultimately, what what they're looking around and seeing is something far short of the promises that God had made to Abraham. And so they're wondering, what next? These prophets tell them what to expect. To expect someone who would come and rule on the throne of David. Zechariah has some of the most beautiful imagery here. In Zechariah, we're presented with this king who comes on David's throne and who comes mysteriously, not just in power, but in humility and suffering. 
and who, through his suffering, is actually able to pour out cleansing on those for whom he suffers. That's an image that we recognize from Isaiah, that we certainly recognize from the Gospels, but it's in the Minor Prophets as well, pointing us to expect one to come who would put this kingdom back in place once and for all. These are the prophets that also teach us to expect that this time the kingdom will be secure because the law will not be outside but written on our hearts. Those memorable images from Jeremiah and from Ezekiel also find their way into the Minor Prophets. Though maybe less specific, Joel, the book of Joel, is the book that Peter quotes from at Pentecost when he's preaching and all of a sudden the Spirit comes down. And, and, and once the Spirit is down, people are starting to speak in these tongues and they're acting in all of these incredible ways and the gospel is going out and it's being responded to over and over and over so that thousands of people come to know him. And it's clear that a new age has dawned. Peter quotes from Joel to explain that because the minor prophets promised that this time there would be no need for exile because this time God would transform his people, not give them a law that's outside them that only condemns, but change them from the inside out through his spirit that comes through Jesus. These books prepare us to understand why Jesus matters. Ultimately, we see the whole Bible as one big story. It's a a long continuum and, and the, key, the key to understanding any one part of it is to know how that part relates to the other parts. And in the Minor Prophets, that's no less true. They help us to see how God feels about Israel as it exists before Christ. And that in seeing that, we, we get insight into why Jesus is so necessary and prepared to worship him and respond to him with thanksgiving when he comes. Those are, the, oh, those are some of the many reasons to study the Minor Prophets, what we plan to learn through our study of the Twelve. I want to leave you with an answer to a third question. How can we make the most of this study? What, we, what can we do as a congregation to maximize what we can learn here? There are clear challenges. One of the challenges is that we're just going really, really fast. That's especially true when you consider Zechariah or Hosea, some of these books that have really uh, long and, and a good high number of chapters. So what do we do? First, let me say, read ahead. Read ahead. One of the most important things you can do to get the most out of this study is to read the book that's going to be preached on before you come to hear it preached on. should be pretty easy to keep up because we're just going to do the next one and the next one and the next one, and we're going to do one a week, starting with Hosea, which you could have read by next week. Now, again, like I said, some of these books, that's going to be harder to do than others. Hosea in particular is 14 chapters. But if you read two chapters a day, starting now and go through the end of the week, You'll have read Hosea before you come in. And some of the books, actually most of them, are considerably shorter than that. Those are books that you could read three or four times in a week before coming to hear it preached on. But especially if you aren't familiar with the contents in them, I would encourage you to read them to prepare to hear about them on Sundays. I would encourage you to do that critically with pencil in hand, writing down questions or observations or issues that don't make sense to you immediately. I think if you do that, I think we all learn this, this is how we learn. If, if we're prepared to ask questions about what it is we're going to hear, then we're ready to receive what we hear. There's going to be pegs in our mind that we can hang the data on as it comes at us. So do that. Read them, but also read them critically and, and take notes as you read them to prepare for Sundays. And finally, read with a good study tool. I am happy to recommend any number of good ones. There are some good ones on our book table back in the back. I would encourage you to grab one that's back there called According to Plan by a guy named Graham Goldsworthy. 
It's a great introduction to how to read the Bible as a big story and to where things like the Minor Prophets fit in that main story. Get a study Bible. The ESV study Bible is excellent. I know some of you have that one. I'd encourage you if you don't have it to get it or find somebody who's got an online code that can give you access to it online. Read with a good study tool because those will help you, help prepare you to, to make the most out of what you get on Sundays. Now, that's where we're headed in the next, in the next few months. We're going to cover a lot of ground and we're going to cover it in a hurry. But I think we're going to love what we find because here we learn more about God, more about who we are before him and more about what he's done to make us what we should be in Christ. Will you pray with me as we commit this time to the Lord? Father, thank you for speaking. Thank you for not leaving us to ourselves to figure things out, but for giving us insight into who you are, into what you want, into what you expect from us, and to how you feel about us even thank you for the encouragement that's to be found in these books to love jesus to embrace him more fully to reflect and and to revel in the grace that's shown to us there we pray that you would keep us strong and engaged intellectually as well as spiritually through the next weeks to come we pray for insight into obscure and sometimes to us odd language we pray for humility to respond even when the the things that emerge challenge our assumptions and desires and we pray for deep and lasting joy that will come from knowing you better through what you have said so we come to you now committing to you this whole series all fall and praying that you would do a mighty work in us and through us because of these books we thank you And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.